Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present William Rivers Pitt, senior editor and lead columnist with Truthout.org, who explains why he believes that Joe Biden may finally be ending Ronald Reagan's rancid legacy. Max Moran of the Revolving Door Project who summarizes his group's report card on how the Biden administration has fared thus far at preventing corporate capture. And Claudine Fox of the Connecticut chapter of the ACLU and Connecticut State Senator May Flexer, who talk about the campaign to end prison gerrymandering that funnels political power away from urban communities. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. In a scathing report, Human Rights Watch accused the State of Israel of committing the crimes of apartheid and persecution. The charges are based on international law and the Rome Treaty that formed the International Criminal Court. The report states Israel gives privileged status to Jewish Israelis over Palestinians, condemns the harsh occupation of the West Bank and East Jerusalem, as well as the institutional discrimination with the intent of maintaining the domination of one ethnic group. Prominent voices have warned for years that apartheid lurks just around the corner if the trajectory of Israel's rule over Palestinians does not change, said Human Rights Watch Executive Director Kenneth Roth. This detailed study, Roth insists, shows that Israeli authorities have already turned that corner and today are committing the crimes against humanity of apartheid and persecution. Report author Omar Shakir told the Washington Post, this is the most striking finding Human Rights Watch has ever reached on the conduct of Israeli authorities. For too long, the international community has failed to recognize the reality on the ground. With less than two months to go before a crowded Democratic primary for New York City mayor, former presidential candidate Andrew Yang is leading the pack, taking advantage of his national name recognition. Progressives and unions are scrambling to influence voters in the city's first election to feature rank-choice voting. In recent days, city comptroller Scott Stringer, a progressive favorite, has been hit with allegations of sexual abuse made by a former campaign aide. At a time when progressive voters have increasing clout, there is concern that a pro-business moderate in the mold of Michael Bloomberg could win City Hall, while progressive candidates, including two women of color, split the left-wing vote. This scenario played out in San Francisco in 2018 when a high-profile pro-business moderate won despite two progressive candidates who cross-endorsed each other to influence the outcome under the ranked-choice voting system. Yang's campaign is being run by operatives close to Bloomberg, and he's seen as a technocratic pro-business candidate and an admirer of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. Yang, who spent much of the pandemic in the upstate city of New Paltz, now leads between 22 and 32 percent, according to various polls, followed by Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams, Scott Stringer, and MSNBC commentator Maya Wiley. After a century of hardship and grief, black farmers are at long last making a comeback. 
On the outskirts of Durham, North Carolina, farmer and food justice activist Todd Walker and a few friends pooled their resources and bought a 48-acre farm they call Earthseed Land Collective to experiment with collective living and inspire people of color to reimagine their relationship to the land. According to Mother Jones magazine, Walker is among a new generation of black farmers looking to reclaim farmland, part of a broader reparations movement that seeks redress for the unpaid debts owed to many black Americans. After the Civil War, former slaves were forced to work as sharecroppers for white landowners as black sank deeper into debt. Still, in 1910, 219,000 blacks owned 20 million acres of farmland. But after the Great Depression, the loss of black farmland accelerated, driven by discrimination, the expensive industrialization of agriculture, and falling crop prices. Today, blacks only own 1% of America's farmland. To help blacks and other historically disadvantaged farmers and ranchers, President Biden's American Rescue Plan set aside $5 billion for debt relief and technical assistance, the most important program to aid black farmers since the civil rights era. Activists are now pushing for passage of the Justice for Black Farmers Act that would allocate $8 billion to purchase farmland, grant it to black farmers, provide agricultural training, and support the development of farmer cooperatives. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. When Ronald Reagan was elected president in 1980, he broadly demonized government and its programs that form the foundation of the nation's social safety net for the poor, elderly, and sick. In the four decades that followed, both Republican and Democratic presidents marginalized and defunded many critical government programs, privatizing others, all while legislating big tax cuts for the nation's wealthiest citizens and profitable corporations. In his 1996 State of the Union address, Bill Clinton proclaimed that the era of big government is over. During the last 40 years, many Americans have seen their standard of living stagnate or decline, while the nation has experienced levels of income and wealth inequality not seen since the Gilded Age. The Great Recession in 2008 further exacerbated an already dire situation. When the coronavirus pandemic exposed the failure of the nation's economy to deliver for working families, it was obvious to many that government must intervene in the crisis in a big way. In contrast to Donald Trump and the Republicans, who weakened major COVID relief programs, Joe Biden came into office proposing and passing the American Rescue Plan and put forward bold initiatives, including the American Jobs Plan, and American Families Plan, with total expenditures of about $6 trillion. Your reporter spoke with William Rivers Pitt, senior editor and lead columnist with Truthout.org. Here he talks about his recent opinion piece titled, Biden's Speech Pointed to a Possible End to Reagan's Rancid Legacy. When you sit up in a high place and you look down on the last 40 years and 
you realize that we've been kind of moldering in place as the the, the things that we were so proud of 40, 50 years ago turn into dandelion fluff and blow away in the wind uh, as wages have stagnated, as money keeps moving upward. Periodically, the trickle-down nonsense gets ahead of itself and obliterates the economy, and we have a, a Wall Street collapse. You have to understand my perspective. However, as, as one who is uh, a member of Generation X, um, I, came into, I came into existence uh, under Nixon, uh, sort of the last vestiges of the honorable concept of an honorable White House were stripped away. Um, the arc of economic and environmental degradation under the auspices of Reagan, who came in when I was about 10 and has been squatting over the landscape like one of those um, Easter Island totems for the last 40 years. Uh, the, 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 the story of my life as a politically aware person and a political activist and a, a writer and the rest of it is the story of that slow and steady arc of dissolution that started uh, in the late 70s and early 80s when the last Democratic coalition collapsed. The Reagan yahoos came in. These are Barry Goldwater's kids. They'll burn the place down before they let anybody else have it, uh, as we saw on the 6th of January. And uh, this elderly generation of Democratic leadership has spent the last 40 years on its knees to these people because they don't quite know how to react to it. They still think that if you're nice to these people, nice things will happen. So to see somebody like Joe Biden, uh, who is a, an avatar of that generation and one of the founding members of the sort of third way DLC, you know, crime bill, banking bill, neoliberal economic forces within the Democratic Party, suddenly it was like an Andy Kaufman prank. He jumped up and he was Bernie Sanders at the podium, and it was uh, it was it was entirely refreshing, if more than a little bit astonishing. William, just to review some of the proposals that have come out of the Biden administration thus far, we have the uh, American Rescue Plan that uh, has passed and it's now law, one point nine trillion dollars addressing the COVID crisis, and then of course. We have the um, American Jobs Plan, a $2.3 trillion plan, the American Families Plan, $1.8 trillion. The question is, will any of this be passed into law with the filibuster in the Senate? But in terms of Joe Biden's commitment to see this through as much as possible, do you think there's a sincere effort to make these things real? Well, he sure shoved, shoved the American Recovery Act right up Mitch McConnell's nostril. That was, that was heartening. They've been doing some investigations with uh, the Senate parliamentarian who uh, has agreed that under the rules that they could try to pass as many as six other bills under what's called Rule 304 of the reconciliation process so that as long as it has something to do with the budget, uh, they could go to reconciliation for a number of these bills, particularly the infrastructure bill, which has everything to do with the budget, at which point we come around to my favorite uh, floating blood clot, Joe Manchin, and the the rock in the road that he's going to prove to be. I get the sense that he put the he put the American Recovery Act on a rocket sled to get it done as quickly as possible to sort of announce his position with authority, and it did a marvelous job of deranging the Republican caucus. Um, but I get the sense that. 
is taking a, they're taking a little bit of a slower road with the rest of the stuff. And I don't know, I haven't seen if a decision has been made yet to pursue any 304 passages of, of any of this other stuff under reconciliation. It may come down to that, at which point they're going to have to, I don't know, lock Joe Manchin in a closet or something somewhere. That was William Rivers Pitt, senior editor and lead columnist with Truthout.org. Find a link to his recent opinion piece titled Biden's Speech Pointed to a Possible End to Reagan's Rancid Legacy by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The term corporate capture refers to an environment in government when a private industry exerts its political influence to take control of the decision-making apparatus of the state within regulatory agencies law enforcement entities, and legislatures. The past four years of the Trump administration was the very embodiment of corporate capture. Trump appointed men and women from corporate America to lead a long list of government agencies. Once installed, they regularly used their positions to deregulate the very industries they came from and more generally abused their power to severely weaken or dismantle government oversight altogether. A 2019 study found that the Trump administration granted the National Association of Manufacturers 85% of their specific requests for industry deregulation. As the new Biden administration completed its first 100 days in office, the Revolving Door Project published a report card on President Biden's success at preventing corporate capture of his executive branch. The watchdog group issued Biden an overall grade of B-. The study found Biden to be the least captured and most public-oriented president of any of our lifetimes. But the report's authors did level criticisms at some of the administration's personnel choices, with ties to big tech, Wall Street, big pharma, the military-industrial complex, and the fossil fuel industry. Your reporter spoke with Max Moran research director with the personnel team at the Revolving Door Project, who summarizes the findings of Joe Biden's corporate capture report card. So we have a, a bit of a mixed view of the Biden administration thus far, although it's a more positive mixed view than I think we would have of basically any other president within our lifetime. Um, our view overall is that uh, Biden is doing a lot to um, really try to make a break from Sort of the neoliberal consensus of the 1980s through the 2010s um, and is reflecting a lot of developments within economics, within uh, politics, within political economy in order to show that a lot of those assumptions, which like, you know, for a bit of a simplistic boiling down, really more or less boil down to uh, do whatever the biggest corporations want and the details will work themselves out. Um, Biden is really making some efforts to break with a lot of that. You saw a lot of that with COVID-19 bill, and you do see a lot of that with uh, the appointees that he's choosing. He is choosing from a broader variety of backgrounds than just uh, corporate executives who uh, have decided they want a, a turn as the regulators of their own industries, which has sadly been the consensus among Democratic and Republican presidents for quite some time. Uh, you see Biden choosing from uh, figures within labor. You see Biden choosing from uh, figures within the civil rights community, academics, and so on. Um, so we are very deeply hardened by that. That by no means uh, indicates that 
uh, corporate interests have no seat at the table or that they don't still wield enormous amounts of power, including over the Biden agenda. Um, where before you might have seen uh, like a Wall Street executive appointed Treasury secretary, now you're seeing Wall Street figures in uh, some of the more advisory roles and some of the more uh, um, staffer level roles and so on. You also have uh, progressives in those fields as well. Um, so it's a little bit more up in the air, I suppose, which again is far better than uh, has happened under most presidents of our lifetimes. Uh, the challenge here is that and this is a little bit unfair, but it is the truth, is that uh, Biden is coming in in the middle of this intersection of like at least four enormous crises, any one of which has incredible, incredible consequences for years to come. You have COVID-19, a public health crisis. You have uh, the continuing racial crisis, which arguably dates back to the founding of this country. Um, you have the climate crisis, uh, and of course you have the economic crisis of inequality, of economic inequality in this country. Um, so the decisions that are made in these next, really over the course of these two years, while uh, Democrats very narrowly have uh, the Congress as well, have enormously high stakes. And so the shortcomings of Biden's administration, of which of course there are some, uh, have a much wider echo effect as a result of that, we think. Um, so while Biden is doing good, there is an enormous amount still to do. So our overall grade for Biden on terms of corporate capture is basically a B minus. Uh, we think that, you know, he's doing good, uh, but there is plenty more that needs to get done. And from there, we break things down into across a range of different um, industries, uh, big oil, Wall Street, big tech and so on in terms of uh, our assessment of how well they have or have not been able to capture or control the key appointees for their respective issues. This report could certainly be the basis for pressure on the Biden administration to move their policies in a different direction or hire different folks to uh, be regulators within the administration. Tell us a little bit about how our listeners can find this report and uh, what you're recommending in terms of uh, how people use it. Sure. Um, so you can find the report and uh, all of our work at therevolvingdoorproject.org. That's therevolvingdoorproject.org. As far as how to use the report, uh, I would first of all just hope that people read it and try to, for one thing, familiarize yourself with how many different sections of the executive branch matter and also how much overlap there is in how um, certain specific agencies or certain specific positions they probably never even heard of uh, wield enormous amounts of power over our lives in different sections and different segments of society. And from there, I mean, I'd say just try to integrate that uh, into your own advocacy, whether that's within uh, a union, whether that's within uh, an activist group, an activist circle that you're a part of. Uh, the more specific that you can be um, when you are protesting or when you are calling for change within the federal government, the more you can really pinpoint and direct your demands and your criticisms to the specific individuals and regulators who make those decisions, the more powerful that is and the more effective chance that they have of being implemented. Most regulators, most bureaucrats are really not used to hearing from the, uh, from the public. They really are not accustomed to facing public pressure over the decisions they make, even though the decisions they make affect the public every day. That actually gives you a tremendous amount of power if you are the group that is able to call them out. That was Max Moran, Research Director with the Personnel Team at the Revolving Door Project, 
at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Find a link to the project's Biden Corporate Capture Report Card by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. On April 26th, the U.S. Census Bureau released initial data from the 2020 census. Population shifts across the country over the last 10 years will mean that six mostly red states will add House seats, while seven mostly blue states will each lose one seat. Census numbers determine not only representation in Congress, but the amount of federal funds allocated to communities. With the political impact of the census in mind, Advocates of a bill in Connecticut to end what they call prison gerrymandering held a rally at the Capitol in Hartford on April 28th. Incarcerated people in the state are currently counted as residents of the cities and towns where prisons are located, which are mostly white rural areas, as opposed to the urban centers where the majority of Black and Latinx imprisoned individuals reside. Forty states have similar prison gerrymandering laws on the books, while 10 states have passed legislation to end prison-based gerrymandering and count incarcerated people in their home communities for redistricting purposes. Those states are California, Colorado, Delaware, Illinois, Maryland, Nevada, New Jersey, New York, Virginia, and Washington State. Between the Lines Melinda Tuhus attended the Hartford rally against prison gerrymandering and presents two of the speakers here. We first hear from Claudine Fox, Interim Public Policy and Advocacy Director with the ACLU of Connecticut. As an organization, the ACLU believes in many things. We fundamentally believe in the liberties guaranteed by our Constitution. We strongly support a fair and free voting system to uphold the foundational cornerstone of our democracy, the right to vote. We also believe in the power of the people. We wear these blue People Not Prison shirts, not to make a fashion statement, but to clearly communicate to the world that we believe that our society should invest in people and not the oppressive systems that keep them down and hold them back. We believe that our society should invest in people, not prisons, and the uh, oppressive uh, systems that keep them down and hold them back. The current practice of counting incarcerated Connecticut residents as residents of towns where they are caged not only harms incarcerated people, it dilutes the votes and resources of the communities they come from and disproportionately benefits communities with prisons. This is fundamentally undemocratic outcome that requires wholesale change. The practice of gerrymandering hurts incarcerated people and undermines people's dignities and identities. People should not be counted as residents of the communities in which they are incarcerated because they do not decide where they will be imprisoned. They are, in fact, not residents of prisons at all, but captives. To pretend that they are being counted in their community of choice, as our current system does, is insulting. In addition, incarcerated people are not integrated into the areas surrounding their prisons and jails. They are unable to take advantage of community resources like libraries, parks, and schools that were paid for, in part, with their bodies. 
Prison gerrymandering violates the dignity of people who are incarcerated. Gerrymandering also harms the communities where incarcerated people live. Racist policies in Connecticut have led to wildly disproportionate numbers of black and Latinx people being imprisoned and compared to white people, meaning that communities of color these prisoners come from are also harmed far worse by the practice of gerrymandering than white communities. Gerrymandering leans on the racist practice of the over-policing and incarceration of predominantly black and brown residents of Connecticut to stay viable. This leads to the overrepresentation of black and brown bodies in prisons, while their communities remain undercounted and underrepresented when it comes to local and state and federal resources, as well as the representation at our state's legislature, the, the building right behind us. The practice of gerrymandering represents a direct transfer of political power and resources from communities of color to mostly white areas. Numerous states have worked to end the practice legislatively, including New York, New Jersey, and Maryland. Connecticut has a once-in-a-decade chance to join this list of states that are shifting power back to justice-impacted communities. By stepping into this opportunity, our elected officials will be directly acknowledging black and brown communities in Connecticut that have been calling to be seen and heard for generations. We believe that everyone plays a role in ending mass incarcerration. People! 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 One more time, people! Thank you. We hear next from Connecticut State Senator May Flexer. Good morning, everyone. I'm so thrilled to be here with all of you today to finally make the policy of Senate Bill 753 a reality. So many of you have been working on this issue for such a long period of time, and it's been said very clearly this morning, this is a once in a decade opportunity, and the state of Connecticut cannot allow the current racist practice to continue. We must pass Senate Bill 753 this year. In my Senate district, there is a correctional institute. And so if we pass this bill, there are hundreds of people who I believe are wrongly counted as constituents of mine who will be transferred back to the place that they're actually from. I hope that all of my colleagues who have prisons in their district will recognize the unfairness of the way we've been doing this for so long, recognize this as an inherently racist policy, and support Senate Bill 753 this year. Thank you all very much. That was Connecticut State Senator May Flexer, preceded by Claudine Fox, Interim Public Policy and Advocacy Director with the ACLU of Connecticut. Learn more about the campaign to end prison gerrymandering by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. 
There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, KPOV in Bend, Oregon, KMUD in Garberville, California, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.